Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech details. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Hi Ian. So tonight I reckon we've just got like kind of a mishmash of follow-up and random things that we've been thinking about, which um, as far as I'm concerned is fine because it's our podcast, so if anyone wants something different they can write in and say so. Or start our podcast. Or start our podcast, yeah. <laughs> so just looking over the follow-up here, we've we've got some previous topics about Larrabee and Xeon Phi and bit on GPUs and compute cards. We've got some stuff that's not really follow-up. Um, about Intel Movidius and some video critic stuff, of course. And then a bit of follow-up on the iPhone 7, I think. Uh, some interesting, fun after-show as well, which I don't know if we should be calling it after-show. It's, it's quite interesting. Anyway, so what's your point on uh, why Larrabee didn't fail? It's the article that we linked to previously about this, isn't it? Yeah, so when I was putting this uh, article, the link to it in the show notes, I actually I typoed it, and when I typoed it, I realised I'd actually kind of misunderstood the article. I typoed it as why Larrabee did fail, whereas in actual fact the title was why Larrabee didn't fail, which actually kind of changes the tone of the article. Um, the gentleman who wrote it, uh, whose name I've forgotten at the moment, um was saying that even though management interfered and the initial goals of the project were set to one side, all the parts of the project made it into various different Intel products, you know, including Xeon Phi, the integrated GPUs and their um, consumer CPUs, that sort of thing. So I was just uh, clearing up that misunder- misunderstanding. I probably even said it wrong last time. Yeah, it's an interesting article, though. I recommend folk uh, go back to the previous show notes or we can put the link in these show notes and go off and read it. Yeah, it is a super good read. And it's, if anyone's a works in any sort of software or tech thing, you know, they'll, they'll know how management decisions can affect what actually ends up being in the product. I mean, there's endless Dilberts about this, um, but that's a good example of it happening in a yeah. big, well-respected company like Intel. Yeah, it's cool to see the behind-the-scenes stuff. So you noticed the point about the latest Xeon Phi's supporting SIMD instructions. Yeah, so previously versions of Xeon Phi, I think they took Pentium 4 um, CPUs and stuck lots of No, it wasn't even that, it was just Pentiums. Was just Pentiums. Yeah, original Pentium architecture. And they supported very little in terms of um, fancy instructions. None of the streaming vector stuff, basically. Like, no MMX onwards. No, nothing like that at all. And MMX came out 1996, I want to say, maybe 97. Something like that. Um, yeah. I remember the it was in the UK certainly there was a, there's a, a consumer rights uh, television program called Watchdog, and they ran a piece about the fact that Intel had released new versions of the processors with MMX after Christmas, which is after the big buying season for PCs in the UK, and this caused a bit of a furore at the time. Yeah. If we, anyway, if we get onto the uh, reminiscing about old PCs thing, I remember when I was very excited at university, I finally got an MMX capable CPU. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, the new Xeon Phi's that we talked we spoke about last time are actually the first Xeon Phi's that support um, SIMD instructions. And this is because they're based on atoms rather than on Pentiums. Now, they, their main support, um, and I'll quote from the Intel briefing here, will support AVX512 SIMD instructions, specifically the Intel AVX512 foundational instructions, uh, conflict detection instructions, exponential and reciprocal instructions, and prefetch, prefetch instructions. Now, this is interesting from the point of view that Yes, they're supporting 
advanced instructions in the Xeon Phi, but also AVX512 actually has very limited support um, in Intel processors. They announced it in 2013, and so far there is one current or two current devices that support it. Let me find a list. Yes, you got Knight's Landing Xeon Phi coprocessor, um, and then Knight's Landing we talked about last week as well. Um, Skylake Xeon processors, some of them support AVX512, and on the consumer side, Canon Lake is ex- is expected to support it sort of across the board. So, so what's, it, what's it good for or nothing yet? I guess it, this sort of thing typically comes into media processing stuff. Yeah, lots and lots of this is media processing stuff. Um, and at the moment, unless you're writing software right down at the very lowest level, I don't think many people are going to be using this straight away. I just thought it was interesting that it was getting support. Yeah, I wonder if that's they're bringing in more support for these streaming instructions as they're releasing the versions of the Xeon Phi that are the host processor too, so you don't need a separate a separate Xeon, so then you know the missing yeah. instructions start to hurt you a bit more for some applications. Yeah, I wonder if they'll work backwards through the catalogue and um, add things like SSE, SSE 2, 3, MMX, that sort of thing, because yeah, th- those are useful if you're running legacy software. Yeah, so other, um, I don't know, this isn't really follow-up, but, um, well, we've talked previously, We one of the, maybe the first episode we speculated about uh, mobile, mobile Pascal chips from NVIDIA, and they've released them now, only they don't call them M parts, they just call them 1060s, 1070s, and 1080s, and I've not seen any detailed analysis, but are basically claiming at least that they're the same as the desktop chips, they're they're just um, scaling down the clocks and things like that to get the power consumption down. Yeah, I, th- I don't think anyone's actually got review units yet. The only slight change I saw was that the 1070 has a different number of compute units, but only by a very small amount. A bit like the two 1060s, the 3 gig and the 6 gig one, maybe. Um, yeah. Um, but it's not surprising, because they're only up to about 150 watts for the 1080s, and big gaming laptops will take, take that sort of uh, power consumption. And, you know, even sort of 50 watts for a sort of chunky 15-inch sort of laptop is fine. Um, and just yesterday at GTC China, uh, they've brought out the new Teslas. So they've got their little 56-watt slot-powered ones, the P4, which has still got 8 gigs of RAM and decent enough. They're really targeting deep learning with this stuff. And they've got the a GP102-based P40. So that's basically the, the, you know, the pro equivalent of the Titan, but specifically targeting deep learning type of applications. Uh, basically, it's a 24 gigabyte uh, Titan P, which is really, really pretty cool for deep learning applications. Expect to see a, a lot of interesting papers published of uh, machines running on these. Do you have an order in for some yourself? I don't, I don't have an order in, sadly. I need to find a pot of gold from somewhere to pay for them. <laughs> um, so, I think other follow up, obviously, to segue into would be the the iPhone 7 stuff, so at the time of recording, the iPhone 7s aren't quite available to buy, pre-orders have been up for a while uh, but the reviews are out and I thought this might be a good time to I was planning on writing a blog post about this but I haven't had the time to get around it, but why are we even doing a podcast? Um, because I was just reminded of this when reading some of the iPhone 7 reviews that are appearing and it's basically, we've always kind of uh, joked that we should be we should start a podcast just when we get frustrated at reading articles or listening to other podcasts when it's people who are maybe maybe they've used something a lot and then they 
they start to think this qualifies them to comment on technical things and they just get stuff wrong and you know it's like when people are wrong on the internet yeah suppose suppose this did start as a joke and then after a few months probably of repeating the joke i'd bought a domain name (laughs) (laughs) then we had some microphones and then yeah um yeah yeah i think and then you accidentally bought a microphone and i accidentally bought a microphone and then that was it but yeah i think you're right i think the motivation is that people lots of the press tends to talk about things in a way that yes it's relevant to most consumers but there's definitely a a different way to look at tech and that isn't just purely benchmarks and numbers i suppose the only thing one of the few outlets i can think of is um anantech that goes really deep into the tech or something it's a shame their podcast is less regular they have really good insight on that yeah i mean they're a great example is their um amd zen coverage those chips aren't out until january they've already had i think two deep dives um on different parts of the architecture you know so it's totally possible to do something deeper and people are obviously interested in it. Yeah, so I mean, the, th- the thing that was uh, making me think about this earlier is I read uh, John Gruber of Daring Fireball's reviews of or what he calls first looks or whatever of the iPhone 7. And he had, in general, it's a pretty good read. Um, we should probably link it in the, in the show notes. It is worth reading because he has had his hands on both phones and has some valid points of view from his opinion using it. But then there was just two things that really grated against me. And one was his comment about the CPU and the other was his, some of his comments about the the cameras in the iPhone 7 Plus. So, yeah, the um, the big little thing is he, he has some comment in there about how, to his, admittedly, he does caveat it with to his knowledge. But, you know, you're saying it's a really revolutionary thing Apple have done with the too big, too little cores for power saving, and to his knowledge, no one's ever done this in a phone before. <laughs> and I hate to be one of those people that are still saying, "Oh, Android's had that for ages," but it's true. It's been like well yeah. published. You can go and look at the source code for managing this stuff in the Linux kernel. You know, it's not it's not new at all. It was originally developed by ARM ages ago. I mean, literally years ago. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I think I mean, it, it just seems to be that seems just seems to be a little bit of blindness on John's part. He maybe just hasn't been paying attention to the CPUs that are inside sort of mid to high end Android phones. Certainly, looking into it myself, a lot of them do use this big little core thing. Um, chipset manufacturers jumped on it really quickly when ARM brought it out, and for the last several years, top end uh, Android phones have been using them. Yeah, and because I noticed you put the link in here about the little cores not appearing in Geekbench results, um, it's not really surprising because it's a it's a high uh, a high power load. Um, and yeah, it was just that the, there was some in the ARM documentation. There is some modes where you can actually use. Say you've got two big cores, two little cores. You can actually use all four at the same time. But it appears the Geekbench results aren't using that. They don't. They show that the iPhone's probably using one of the other. Um, modes where you know jobs are shifted between a pair of big and little cores. Yeah, it's, it's interesting actually. I, rem- I wish I could find the link, but I've tried and failed. There's some interesting articles about it because, for example, some of the Samsung Exynos chips have um, it's kind of big little bits, four and four cores, and okay. they have some. They did briefly, if I'm remembering correctly, have some modes where they could enable all eight cores together, but it was only in very very few situations because you have. Um, 
symmetric multiprocessing is processing is hard asymmetric multiprocessing is even harder and they have all kinds of problems that we mentioned last time at working on cache stuff and things like that and i was reading uh, an article earlier today or yesterday about or did you send me a link to the mono bug with the the bug in the cache line lengths between yeah where they, they were having a, a a crash and the actual debug line was on like the, the i think like the sixth line of the debug output and it seemed like an odd, oddly sort of round a number for the length and yeah they eventually figured it was the big little transition that was causing the crash and um, because the cache size was different on the small or on the little core than it was in the big core yeah and that's just a, a, tra- a transition which is managed in theory by the hardware and kernel and not even trying to work with them both at once um so that's so yeah that's interesting then the kind of the other thing that grated was um i guess it kind of especially grated because i was looking at a bit now we've got some sample photos to pour over exif data from for the seven plus i was looking at the differences between the main camera and the telephoto lens on it and i've been doing some sums in terms of you know what's the focal length and and so on because the cameras are different different sensor sizes as well as different focal lengths yeah and i was trying to work out the maths of that and why they're doing that and then in in john's review he made some comment about oh how it's amazing that they've got an f2.8 tele lens in there or remarkable or something and it really isn't if you know anything about lenses and what the f number actually means if, if i had to put money on it i could have guessed an f2.8 lens because it's exactly the same amount of glass as you need in the same lens size as they have for the wide angle and they're yeah. obviously really limited by the size of the things so yeah um I did numbers on this if you're interested. <laughs> so you've got a third of an inch f1.8 sensor for the main camera and a, a 1 over 3.2 uh, f2.8 tele lens. The tele is a 6.6 millimeter focal length and it's a 3.99 focal length on the wide. That's interesting actually because the, the wider angle lens has got wider than the previous iPhones. So the an iPhone 6S and six has got a four point one five millimeter focal length, so I guess that probably doesn't mean much to you. Um, you you're kind of thinking fifteen hundreds of a millimeter, sorry, sixteen hundreds yeah. of a millimeter. Um, so that's if you put in thirty five mil terms, that's like a twenty eight point eight versus a twenty nine point nine. Yeah. Uh, and again, that probably doesn't mean much to most folks. So I can put in kind of a easier to understand terms. It's that's an extra two degrees wider. If that makes sense on the width. Yeah. And uh, what does that mean? Well, if you're taking a photo of something 10 foot away, you'd have uh, six inches more in at the side, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So it's just interesting that they've done that. Um, Slightly tweaking the lens size. It'll be because they can... Because they're really hurting for space in an iPhone, right? They're really trying to cram stuff in. And if you make make the focal length very slightly shorter, you also... And you're increasing the aperture, you reduce the size of the lens you require slightly. Yeah. And I bet they're just balancing it. So if we, if we just go over some maths for a moment. So basically the F number, what you're actually talking about is the ratio of the focal length over the diameter of the aperture. Yep. Okay. So, and the field of view of a, the field of view is related to the focal length and the size of the sensor. That makes sense, right? A bigger sensor for a given focal length, we'd, you'd see more of the world because you're expanding the image. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So if you've got an F, 
f1.8 uh, and your main camera say if you're doubling the focal length which is roughly what they're doing on the telly we'll come back to it um, and you kept the same f number well you're going up with the square of the focal length so you'd need four times the size of the aperture which means you need four times the area the area yep. of glass and obviously if you look at an iphone there's not room for that right a four times no. greater area no. lens in there so if you double the focal length you need to half the f number to keep the keep the glass the same basically and you go oh well 2.8 is not you know it's not double 1.8 and that's because they've gone to a 1 over 3.2 sensor so that's why they only have to go to 6.6 millimeters rather than 8 millimeters to get the doubled focal length but the doubled field sorry the halved field of view doubles in that makes sense yeah it makes sense it's a bit hard without writing it down but um yeah, so I think we'll for listeners we'll put the, this maths in the show notes. Yeah, I've got, I've got some notes. We're working. I'll put it in. Yeah. But basically, I suspect that they want. I I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to keep it f two point eight, and that was their target. So then the question is, if that's your target and you're limited by the maximum size of your lens, and that's the limiting factor, but you want f two point eight, then and you want a two times zoom so that defines your um 35 mil equivalent then then you get that gets you the sensor size so you work back to sensor size from the f number that you want to say you've got which is i kind of think a bit of a marketing thing because if you say f 2.8 anyone used to cameras or expensive cameras thinks oh wow that's that's brilliant because f 2.8 lenses are expensive right i mean in general for dslr canon l series stuff is generally f 2.8 Fast primes might be f one point eight, f one point four. You know that's well, that's what their wide angle is. So, yeah, you know this sounds like a good camera. You know, oh, f f two point eight telephoto lens. That's that's expensive. That's you know premium. So I I kind of wonder if they work back like that. You know, we've got a hardware yeah. not on the size of the lens. We want to say it's f two point eight. We want double. You know, it to be a double zoom. So therefore, what's our what's our sensor size? And yeah. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I think um, so. What I'm getting from this is that basically the lens on both sides is actually pretty similar, but on the dual camera iPhone Seven Plus, but they're changing the sensor, resizing the sensor to get changing the, the sensor and the focal length. So the arrangement of the actual elements in the lens will be different, but similar okay. similar area of glass because that, that's that's the real limit they've got here, right? Is how big a disc of glass can you put in front? Yeah, um, and. In terms of OF two point eight sounding good, well, what's it actually mean in terms of the amount of light you're letting in? And you asked me this question earlier, actually, like, oh, what's what's that the equivalent of on a thirty five mil camera? Well, the F two point eight telly on the seven plus, that's like if you have a so they're saying it's the equivalent of a fifty six mil lens. So if you've got a, if you had a fifty six mil lens on your full frame camera, you'd have to stop it down to F twenty three point eight to get the same size aperture. That's okay. Yeah, it's a diameter of two point three six millimeters. That's uh, so, yeah. That would be stopped down an awful lot on a on a big camera. So I mean, this is still not capturing anything like the amount of light that you're going to get in the in a prop proper camera. You see what I mean? So that's just some yeah interesting stats there. You can yeah. definitely notice in some of the sample photos, especially um, Matthew Panzerino. I think his uh, TechCrunch article has got some good samples from the telephoto lens, and you can tell it is struggling to gather the light that it doesn't doesn't have the ois on it either yeah i saw a few people talking about the, the lack of ois in the telephoto lens this morning and certainly apple's product photos of the sort of bare camera units seem to support that you can see that the 
the non-telephoto lens is sort of seems to be a separate part from this sort of circuit board, but then the telephoto lens is just on like a little spring setup to give it a tiny bit of isolation. Yeah, so that's the other thing they call it a telephoto. I'm calling it a telephoto here to be d- distinct, but it's, as John said rightly in his review, is is more of a normal field of view lens. So yeah. that is it. It presents an image that's a similar perspective as you're used to seeing with your human eyes, as opposed to your non-human eyes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought it was all quite interesting. The other inter- two other sort of interesting um, little facts that I find is there's a BuzzFeed article about uh, why they ditched the headphone jack, which is, yeah, okay, whatever. But the interesting thing there is they have from Apple sources that they're only getting nine levels of depth uh, for their portrait mode out of their stereo. And that kind of really ties in with what I've been saying pre- what I was saying previously in my speculations about how they might be doing the portrait effect for the depth of field and that they couldn't get very good resolution in the depth because of the, the short baseline between the cameras. Yep. Which makes me even more think that they're... And they've also talked about doing machine learning. Uh, other articles where they've... Apple, people I've interviewed with folk have mentioned how they, they capture images simultaneously with both cameras and merge them to enhance the image and so on. And this uh, this really points to some sort of feature matching and segmentation-based approach to... And they, they talk about how they used machine learning to do blurring, and that's it's a bit of a you know choo choo hype train. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see there is raw image support for third party apps available in the new iPhones. It'd be interesting to see if you can get the image from both cameras and in and in the old iPhones. It's it's coming to previous models as well. Is it okay? Right. Um, and also, like a thing I'd like to see is like the actual depth map is like some sort of metadata on the image, so you can do things with it later. Because if this if their um, bokeh um, setup that's coming soon to the 7 Plus is doing the sort of background blur effect using software, well, why not have both the images and the depth data and then let third-party apps you know, choose how much or how little of that to do like in the future non-destructively? Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily want the depth data so much as the raw left and right images and the intrinsic and extrinsic parameters, which must be in there somewhere if they're doing this. Um, I actually thought if it, if for some reason I end up with a seven plus on launch day, I might shoot some calibration charts and generate some point clouds and see what sort of a depth maps I can pull out of it myself. It's, yep. it's not a hard thing for me to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what else has come out with this? It, oh yeah, there's an article that they're using Intel modems. Yeah. So there was a, there was some articles a while back um, saying Intel had won the contract to um, provide modems for the iPhones. And at the time, I don't think it was speculated they would appear in the iPhone Seven, but they have. Um, certainly, it's, it's been less than a few months since that news came out. So I'm, I'm actually really impressed to see Intel modems in there already. And there's been a bit of speculation about Intel possibly fabbing um, Apple's system on a chip for them. Um, so Intel purely providing fab rather than um, silicon design uh, services. Yeah, that is interesting. And the kind of final bit of iPhone 7 follow-up we've kind of got here is there's a really good article that someone's wrote in Medium and they're talking about the ceramic that Apple have been using in their various products and prevent presents backed up by evidence of how they've done the, the new watch and previous patents that they filed and so on but there's some really quite compelling evidence that Apple is moving towards uh, maybe their ceramics for a kind of a post-aluminium industrial design aesthetic. And yeah, it's a, it's a really good um, piece. I think it's actually on Quora as an answer to someone's oh, question. Oh, sorry, I, I knew it was on some... Uh, yeah, but these. it's like, it's super long, it's absolutely worth a read. They talk about Apple's failed um, uh, 
uh, sapphire um, plant or you know partner plant. Um, yeah, and the- a few years ago, and how they maybe looked at using that, and now they seem to have made quite a big investment in doing ceramic. And I like how they go into all the detail of how the main the main problem you have with forging these ceramic casings is you can't do the fine detail of the structures you need to support. Uh, the internal components but then they've developed this method of bonding polymers inside it so you can then have the support armatures and so on that's it's really fascinating and yeah i was speculating i'd really like a ceramic iphone uh, yeah i mean i've been to see if they can fix the sort of classic ceramic problem which is that it's um not terribly resistant to shattering if it's hit in the right way or dropped yeah so i guess to finish this follow-up did you pre-order an iphone i did yeah i bought the or bought pre-ordered the Seven in the black, hundred and twenty-eight gig, exactly as I said last week. Shiny black or black black? Black black, yeah. not the jet black. Yeah, the jet black from what I've seen, and especially in Neely Patel and the, the Verge review today, say his jet black phone was scratched within minutes of having it. Yeah, so I, I've not pre-ordered one. Um, I'm still vaguely thinking about getting one, but yeah, we'll see. I, I kind of really want to go and pull a point cloud out of those two cameras if I possibly can, but uh, that's a very poor reason to spend a lot of money on a new phone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we do have a, a, some other interesting tech news. So something I th- I noticed uh, in the last week very interesting is Intel have, are continuing their uh, AI-based acquisitions and they've bought Mavidius or are buying Mavidius who are an Irish, I would, I would say startup, but they're going 10 years now, so they're having, you know, pretty good going. Yeah, and I think 10 years are a proper business. Yeah, they've had silicon DJI, latest DJI drones have Movidius chips inside them and things like that, and they're kind of, uh, unlike Nirvana, who until bought, who are targeting the high end of deep learning and AI stuff, they're, uh, Movidius are targeting low-power embedded stuff and more. It's more about the vision, uh, vision processing, uh, as well as a little bit of neural net stuff. And this is really super interesting because Intel, who originally were involved with OpenCV and then sold it and other people have taken it over for a while, Intel bought, Opens, bought OpenCV back again. And if anyone, for anyone listening that isn't, doesn't do a lot of robotics and vision work, OpenCV is the vision library for doing uh, image processing on computers for basically anything. Uh, it's exceptionally popular and very widely used. So now you've got Intel owning the software stack and the hardware uh, or a lot of a big chunk of the promising looking hardware it seems like intel really don't want to miss the artificial intelligence boat yeah i mean the movidius thing is interesting because as you say they are a, like a an established company they've got some big clients including um dji who make the phantom drones yeah you know they've got i don't know how many they sell but you know it's, it's tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of them you know so that's that's real product going out the door a lot of these sort of ai buys recently are companies that either don't have something or only have things that are experimental or are just software. Movidius make actual things that go into items that people buy in shops. Yeah, so it's super interesting. I mean, Intel are obviously thinking that there's, you know, a change in the computing that we're doing that maybe requires a different architecture, and that's that's quite exciting. It's an exciting yeah. time to be in the business. And the second thing I'd say is, like, the, the name OpenCV is always terribly confusing to me because I think, oh, yeah, it's like an open-source project. Well, it it's is. Like a, it is. It's a community-owned thing. Oh, no, Intel owns it. Okay. Well, there's a lot of open-source that's owned by a company and maintained by them. But, yeah, OpenCV is open. You can look at all the source code. Yeah. Um, maybe they'll uh, put some effort into making it less of an absolute nightmare to compile, but that's a bit inside baseball. Yeah, yeah. so... um. 
Matt Hawley, he works for um, oh, what's Casey Neistat's video startup called? Uh, uh, Beam. Yes. B E M E. I saw him tweeting just like literally about an hour ago about how difficult it is to install um, uh, OpenCV. Uh, yeah. It's like a game of whack-a-mole getting all the right installed dependencies. That's not even half the problem. We could be here. I could have an entire podcast dedicated to the fun and <laughs> games installing different versions of OpenCV and so on. Um, and there's some interesting uh, video codec news as well. This yeah, week. so the this was... People keep talking about B, the BBC's video codec. Now, I would say it's not so much a codec as it is an encoder. Um, so the BBC have launched something called the Turing Codec. It's uh, TuringCodec.org, and we'll have that in the show notes along with the GitHub repository for it. But it's an H.265 or HEVC software video encoder. Um, now, the thing that makes this different from other video encoders is it's quite low resource utilisation. And I say quite low. Um, obviously, it still takes a lot of CPU horsepower but it does have a considerably smaller memory footprint compared to X265 um, or some of the other encoders. Um, looking at the charts here, they're talking about using two to 300 megabytes of memory um, uh, during encoding as opposed to uh, the reference encoder, which is using two and a half gig of memory to do the same thing. So obviously they're one of the BBC's big... Um, Encoding workloads is taking live content that they broadcast out and making it available for BBC iPlayer, for people doing catch-up TV. Um, and that, they want to do that as quickly as possible. So a show finishes, and then as soon as possible, it's gone through their encoding pipeline, and it's up for people to watch. Well, this is a, this investment in making their own codec, which is open source, um, helps them do that with fewer resources. Uh, it is quite an impressive thing to do. I mean any video codec or any video encoder um, is a complex thing um, and the BBC seem to have done a great job with this and not only have they, they made it work obviously um, they've hit some pretty lofty goals in terms of the resource utilisation I've not had a chance to install it yet um, it doesn't have install instructions for OS X um, I'm to try installing it on a Linux box uh, later on but it's got um, FFmpeg integration as you would expect so yeah it should just, should just work once you get the compilation done oh, it's a bit of a sort of open CV compilation situation there <laughs> it can't be as bad, it really can't yeah um, okay I think that's all our topics I, th- I thought we were short on topics and that's just gone 31 minutes already so that's actually not bad yep um, so as always thanks for listening uh, you can get the show's twitter account at pink out podcast or you can get onto dog at, at douglas f Shearer, and i'm at the underscore accidental not actually underscore in the middle there a character underscore i picked the worst twitter handle ever <laughs> um, and if we've been more wrong than you can uh, contain in 140 characters then do please email us at wrong on the internet at pinkoutpodcast.com You've just reminded me about the, you know, people like um, bad email addresses to say on the phone. I'm sure this is like a <laughs> website or something. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So here it is. A list of email addresses that would be really annoying to give on the phone. I'll wait till this loads. So it's, it's Mike underscore 2004 at yahoo.com and it's Mike 
and then it's the word underscore and then 2004 and then mike at yahoo.com at where it's it's m-i-k-e-a-t-y-a-h-o-o-d-o-t-c-o-m at hotmail.com I, I just don't like having a long email address because it's got my name in it you know it's, it's always annoying it never fits in the form yeah um anyway so what are you on about um the Office Space reference in a tech. Oh, so so we we talked about I think a few. Was it last week? It can't have been last week. It must have been the week before about sort of uh, computer names that we found amusing, um, and one of them was the Intertech Superbrain, um, and this reminded me if you've if anyone's seen the film Office Space, um, the film Office Space is about nineties. It's yeah, it's a sort of romantic comedy, or it's a comedy. It's not even a romantic comedy. I shouldn't have said that. It's a comedy set in nineties tech culture, like during the bubble. Um, it's a a really good movie. It's by Mike Judge, the same guy that does Silicon Valley. Um, he wrote and directed it, and it's for me, it's nearly a perfect movie. Not because of the tech angle, it's because there is no scene or character in it that's wasted or just seems superfluous in any way. Um, but in that, the, the sort of the tech companies are a bit of a have joke names like one's called Inatech and one's called Inatrode. Um But one of the names, computer names, we enjoyed the other day was called the Superbrain, and it was made by a company called Intertech. Hmm. I don't know if there's any actual link there, but I just thought it sounded very like it. Yeah, talking of these uh, computers, uh, after the show last week, we should have been recording this, but I caught you looking up Superdomes on eBay. Yeah, so that was another one of the, the, the sort of fun computer names they found was the HP Superdome. Um, it's had, we should maybe talk about it more in the future, it's a bit of an interesting machine, but it's had several in, um, incarnations. And I found several of those incarnations, older ones, available for low tens of thousands of, I think it was euros. Yeah, 30,000 uh, euros. Only only, yeah. only 50 euros shipping, though, which for something the size of a fridge is impressive. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the three-phase power supply to run it. But these <laughs> things, I mean, we'll, we'll link to these in the show notes. The the pictures are incredible. Just the the connectors inside the cabinet, the way things are arranged. Um, yeah, it's, it's a cool bit of kit. So, um, yeah, hopefully those sponsors appear soon. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um so the other thing we should talk about definitely is we were talking about bad motherboard copy and I couldn't resist looking this up because it's not um, it's not some it's kind of bad copy I've got an awesome one an awesome contender here we can maybe make this a regular thing it's not so much the copy it's it's the stock photos so I, I present I present um, for your enjoyment the ASRock E3 V5 WS snappily named workstation motherboard uh, so so there are many glorious things on this webpage um, I'll let you uh, paint a word picture but I'll, I'll describe things first for a start the box says super alloy in massive letters on on it which is a uh, is fun the actual boxes from motherboard that's could be another topic but if you scroll down you'll see that these are motherboards built for content creators if you want to build dreams and create reality and they are indeed built with primo components and cut edge technology the extreme series makes sorry sorry was that, was that cut edge technology yes I, I said that correctly i didn't say cutting i said cut <laughs> edge technology and uh they make content creation easily and pleasurable. So would you just describe some of this glorious stock photography that is gracing this motherboard's webpage? Have you sent me a link to this? Sorry. Oh, yeah, you have. Paste okay. it in the show notes. <laughs> have a look at this. It's only the closer you look, the, the crazier it is. 
Oh, there is like a there's a, a picture with just a video editor and it's a man sitting with some camera gear and a computer monitor on a desk. Can I just say his his monitor is terribly small for video editing? I know it's like a fifteen inch widescreen monitor or something. Yeah, and it's a sort of brunette uh, Justin Bieber with eyebrows that would compete with mine in terms of their thickness. He looks oh, pretty well. nervous. <laughs> he looks very, very nervous, like he should actually be getting back to I, I think he's nervous because he's seen what the 3D printing designer is working on. <laughs> Let me find that. Uh, In the middle. Oh, uh, yeah, the skulls. <laughs> well, it, it's the weirdest 3D editor ever, so it's got your typical four-pane view where you get an isometric you know, 3D view and then the top and side elevations, only for some reason the front ele- is three of them are of a head and then the front elevation's a skull. <laughs> I think I think the um, three quarter left elevation's a skull as well. Like the yeah. bottom it's a, it's a bit right. odd. Like what what is this person designing and why? Yeah. There's a there's a there's a a graph in the graphic designer section there is a lady um wearing leather braces and a hat working with using like a, a Wacom tablet. I think there might be a leader who's in she's wearing, not braces. <laughs> oh dear. That architect yeah, I mean, is I... extremely concerned. Yeah, probably that his building's about to fall down. Um, it, does look, it does look like a sort of cottage on stilts that's on his desk next to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the uh, stock photography on these websites is brilliant. The, the, the front page of the Azaz website, I'll, I'll paste that in the, I'll, I'll paste it in the Skype chat so you can get that. Like uh, most of the pictures, if if you look at stock photography, um, and I can't name a stock photography site, but the, the images are Getty packed. images or whatever. Yeah. Getty images, yeah, exactly. Um, I imagine many of these images were tagged with the tag mansplaining because anytime <laughs> there is two people in the picture, like a man and a woman, it does look like the man is explaining something to the woman. On the Asus UK website, there's a near the bottom left, there's a get support image where a man wearing a shirt and sort of thick rimmed glasses looks to be explaining something to a blonde woman. Yeah. Yeah, so the... Anyway, if if names, if I have to pick a name, I I am going to have to go for um, Azrock's full spike protection. <laughs> oh yeah, I can. I struggled to come up with a single name. I was just too obsessed with the copy. There was one here for a uh, Asus H one one O M hyphen E four slash M dot two motherboard. Excellent. Um, yeah fantastic name in there but they're talking about the front USB connectors let me find it again thrilling, Instant- thrilling stuff <laughs> yeah I mean this is the, it takes up like this episode is going to go viral sc- for sure yeah half a screen's worth of real estate um, instant front panel USB 3 experience we've put USB 3 right where you need it two super speed ports on the front panel now bearing in mind this is a motherboard and the front panel actually comes in something else you buy experience data transfer speeds up to 10 times Faster than USB 2 with instant plug-and-play connectivity. So no more back-breaking contortions in the hunt for hard-to-reach rear ports. <laughs> so they've, they've got, you know, your health and safety needs in mind there. Um, and then another thing I love, there's a, also on the Asus website, there's um, a page for their Strix graphic cards. I don't know which one this is. Let me see if I can find it. 1080. GTX 1080. And it's um, graphs and numbers with no context. Like, you know, just like, you know, the Founders Edition does 45.8 FPS and 
the ROG Strix version is 48.4 and it does tell you the game and the resolution and such like but it's just the graphs are they're not zero baseline so it looks really good whereas actually it's a very tiny nice difference. Bezos charts yeah yeah Bezos charts and um, yeah just things like more FPS and then just a percentage next to it with no context unless you actually look around the whole rest of the page which is a shame because those days are Strix cards actually pretty solid uh, solid speed boost over the standard cards yeah, and I think this is the thing. A lot of the time, on the motherboard, certainly, I can see why they have to have all the sort of, not pretentious copy, but sort of over-the-top copy, copy to try and differentiate them. Um, a lot of the time, people are just looking at specs, and sometimes you've got to make up something for people to read. Whereas the graphics cards, they don't have to do that quite so much. Quite so much. I mean, all that matters is the performance of the graphics card compared to other ones at the end of the day. Um so you, yeah. don't have to, you don't have to be telling people how exciting your capacitors are and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, they do, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Anyway, yeah. I think that's enough of it for this week. We've gone quite long. 